Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid. Frequently in my general practice, and particularly in my practice with elite sports people, I have noticed the connection between particularly stress and immunity. I think most of us know about this, particularly as it relates to glandular fever. In researching this, I uh, came across a, a fascinating to me new branch of science, psychoneuroimmunology, which connects or aims to connect the psychological well-being of a person with their neurological system and their immunity and found that most of this work was being done unfortunately in the United States but lo and behold we have actually here at Newcastle University Dr Deborah Hodgson who has set up a psychoneuroimmunology lab. Welcome Deborah. Hello Virginia. Deborah, could you tell me a little about yourself and how you came to be interested in psychoneuroimmunology? Oh, for me, um, I was originally a nurse and um, I guess working in the health field, I was also sort of noticing along with other people at the time that there was a lot more to getting sick and recovering from illness and, you know, just medication. And uh, a lot of it seemed to me to be uh, about patients' psychological well-being and psychological coping strategies. So I basically started doing research in the area and, and did a PhD and ended up in the States uh, at the uh, a very renowned university for psychoneuroimmunology. And so uh, that's sort of how I got interested and, and I've been continuing that research here at Newcastle since. That's amazingly committed. Was there a particular instance that really caused that degree of commitment? I don't think it was one instance. I think it was the repeated sort of exposure to seeing patients uh, in a medical setting that, you know, for no um, sort of known reason, they wouldn't recover from surgery in the normal time. And then, you know, you'd start to, to talk to them and realise that there was a lot more going in, on in their life mm-hmm. other than just the, the stress of surgery. There might have been a lack of social support or, you know, other concerns, um, you know, sort of uh, indirectly related to their recovery. Mm, I agree. There's an awful lot of talk now, isn't there? People like Bernie Siegel often get quoted, who was a surgeon, or is a surgeon, um, about, you know, people putting off their death until an anniversary. Um, Those sort of uh, phenomena are well known, aren't they? But we don't really, well, we keep saying we don't really understand the connection, but I guess you're in a good position to discuss with me the connection. I think that's that's where this field has has really taken off. I think anecdotally we all see these sort of Mm. relationships you know, my students here at the university will always say, oh, how come it is that, you know, comes to exam time and, you know, I get through, but as soon as they're finished, I crash and, and I'm sick. Or, mm. you know, you do see the classic example of, you know, partners that, um, you know, they have a spouse uh, die and then, uh, you know, a few months later for, for so-called unknown reasons, you know, the other partner mm. um, seems to give up and die as well. Mm. There are numerous examples, aren't there? Mm. So how does psychoneuroimmunology hope to, res- to shed some light, if you like, on the this particular connection? Well, I think the whole field, we, we, PNI is the abbreviation. It's a lot easier to say than that. PNI, agreed. <laughs> Psychoneuroimmunology. I guess um, I, I like to say it because it gives people, when you say PNI, I mean, it's so, to me, it's fairly new. Is that correct? I think, well, I think in the public's eye, it's most probably quite new, but it's actually been uh, evolving over most probably about the last 20 years. I think mm-hmm. that it's most probably around about the 
late 70s or so that, that it really started to get going. But as you say, I think it is good to point out to people that, you know, the big word, it really does explain what we do, which is mm. to try and explain that link between the brain, behaviour and the immune system. And I guess that, uh, you know, that's, that's the advantage of this model is it's able to look at individuals in those three very distinct ways, their behaviour, um, how their immune system functions and psychologically how they think and recover or respond to, to to illness. Now, do you actually work with people in your lab? Yeah, predominantly our work is, uh, is with animal models, but we do also, uh, in the past uh, and currently, I work, yes, with some human models. Mm-hmm. Um, but most notably, our work is with, with animal models. Um, but all of the work that we do, we see as having, um, you know, an analogue in, in, uh, in the human situation. Mm. I had noticed that a lot of the research was animal research and was extremely rigorous scientifically. I think that the, the field has uh, has that advantage or uh, that it has that strong empirical basis and I think that that had to happen because a lot of what was happening in the in the early years of this field was a lot of, if you like, pop psychology, um, unfounded research mm-hmm. and it was stirring up a lot of interest in the community. And when I first got involved in the field, which was actually, you know, quite early on when it was evolving, there was a strong push by our scientific group to make sure that the research we carried out was, Mm. you know, uh, empirically sound. Mm. Um, And as a consequence, the field has grown with considerable uh, expansion into what are considered to be the hardcore science areas Mm. and has a lot of respect in those areas. Yeah, that's what I was noticing, which was interesting to me because I suppose a lot of people feel these are the soft sciences. Mm. And therefore, it didn't want to adopt that sort of um, attitude by the general public or by other scientists, I'd imagine. And it is interesting. When I first started going to meetings over 15 years ago, I was noting you'd have a variety of people, but you wouldn't see, you know, you wouldn't see the hardcore immunologists there. You wouldn't see Mm. the neuroscientists there. You would see a mixture of health professionals. Now at our meetings... It's a tremendous mixture of people from, you know, mm-hmm. immune sciences, neurosciences, behavioural sciences, um, and it is, uh, you know, a very strongly represented field in, in those, what you like to say, are the hardcore sciences. Mm, I think it's a really happening sort of coming area, and that's why I wanted to bring it to wellbeing today. And I have with me Dr Deborah Hodgson from Newcastle University. It might be an idea now, I think, for us to talk about what is actually being or has been done. Oh, it's uh, difficult to start. I mean, there's so much that's evolved, but I guess if I could pinpoint the major area, I guess it's in the area of stress. I think everybody can sort of relate to the phenomena of stress and can possibly sort of understand the idea that when we get stressed, often there's an associated uh, illness. And so I think the early work has been really trying to understand what the biological basis is for those sorts of findings. And so many, many early studies in the area were looking at things like, you know, an acute stress or what did that do to, say, our immune system. And what does it do? I think uh, some of the early work was were looking at some basic immunological outcomes. And so we'd see depression in the sorts of cells that are important. Uh, are but important. how does that relate to immunity, depression? 
No, what they'd see is depression mm-hmm. of particular immune cells. So we'd ah, see those immune cells mm-hmm. not function as well. Right. Um, and so that, um, you know, they'd be looking at things like what about one of the classic examples, I guess, is mm-hmm. a very stressed population, which is the caregivers, people who are caregivers of chronically ill people. Mm-hmm. And it might be something like an Alzheimer. Someone's got a partner who's got Alzheimer's. And there's a very strong correlation between those sorts of people and a you know, rapidly declining health rate for those people. So what they're able to show is that in those people, when you look at some of their immune cells, you would see that the function and activity of those cells was depressed. Okay, so this is like in a test tube type thing. That's right. Taking, right. We'd actually take blood right. from those before people. they got sick, hopefully. Yeah, what you do is actually, you know, you take baseline measures. So we take right. some blood. We look at some basic sort of parameters that are indicative of immune function, of how well your immune function is. And then what we do is follow those people over a long period of time and you know, repeatedly sample some, some blood um, and see what's happening to those immune parameters. And do you measure that in relationship to their stress hormones, that's like right. adrenaline and cortisol, etc.? Yeah, that, and that's a tr- mm-hmm. I mean, it's tremendous that you bring that up. I mean, it's important for us at the same time to be able to correlate that with what's happening in their endocrine system, in their stress response. And as you say, what we'd measure is cortisol or epinephrine or you know these sorts of uh, indicators mm. of, of stress. And then are there outcome measures like whether these people die younger than the general population and if so, of what? There haven't been those studies that have got that far along, I guess, to say that they're actually increased in sort of their mortality or morbidity rate. But lots of studies that are suggesting that um, if these people are exposed to, say, a virus or an infection, they have less chance of recovering well Mm -hmm. from that particular infection. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about particularly, say, with an Alzheimer's population, elderly people... Um, you can sort of obviously generalise to the possibility that if these people are exposed to, say, flu, a common sort of problem for the elderly, their chances of of survival um, or recovery are obviously going to be um, less. Mm. But lots of other, I guess, I'm trying to think more of the the human studies for Mm. you. Um, Well, no, let's talk about some of your animal studies. I mean, what do they do to these little animals? On the whole, what are they? Are they little rabbits or...? It can be anything from rats, mice, guinea pigs, sheep, cows. Um, There's so many different models that people will use. Okay. Um, In our lab, we use predominantly rats, mice and guinea pigs. Okay. Um, And what are you studying with them? We're actually interested in... uh, We started off uh, when I moved first to Newcastle looking at the phenomena of stress and trying to understand how that would affect health outcomes in humans and using an animal model. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're actually at the moment very interested in the idea that exposure to stressors early in life may actually change our predisposition what to do you disease call? in later life. Right, so what do you call early? We, you, we look at the early prenatal period, so that means... Oh during pregnancy Mm. and we're then looking at what's happening say in the first few weeks of life Mm -hmm. and we do that actually in an animal model mice and rats but Mm -hmm. we're also doing that in in a human population as well Mm -hmm. Um, what you actually see is uh, that there are very uh, pronounced effects of if you like stress Mm -hmm. during pregnancy and they endure for uh, you know long term so that the offspring born to a stressed mother Mm. um, actually is quite altered 
physiologically than a, a child born to a mother that was not stressed. And what are some of those physiological changes? One of the main changes that we believe we're seeing is that it programs, we call it fetal programming, is that exposure to stress in utero programs the fetal immune uh, system. And we believe that what's happening is um, it's programming the fetal immune system to, to have a bias towards one arm of the immune system. It's a bit complicated. I mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't go into too much detail, but detail about the immune system, but just to say that what we believe is happening is it may predispose individuals to be susceptible to asthma. It may also predispose towards cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So is that because the, the hormonal setup that is created by the stress... Mm -hmm. In other words, would you say that, that that's the pituitary adrenal sort of access? That's exactly right. Right. So that becomes aberrant in those fetuses because that's what they're exposed to during their fetal life? That's exactly right. And therefore that has an effect on the immune system? Yeah. Well, what we see is in human and animal models is that if the fetus, whilst it's developing, is exposed to stress, mm. and stress can be anything from getting an infection, uh, the mother being mm. exposed to trauma, not, you know, I think a lot of people have a very simple sort of idea of what stress is. Yes. Um, so infection is a, is a very common sort of um, stressor that we use. Mm. So when the uh, offspring um, are born, what you see is, as you said, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, mm. which secretes their stress hormones, is hyper-responsive. Mm. So when they grow up and reach adulthood and you expose them to a stressful event, they produce more cortisol than a matched control subject, mm. one that hasn't had that stressful in utero experience. Mm. One of the lovely things for me was to know that white blood cells have on their surface receptors for hormones. That was the beginning for me of thinking, aha. Yes. And I don't think that's commonly known and that they also, like the immune system communicates with the hormonal system and is affected by the neuronal system. Yes, I mean, that was actually, um, I guess, the one of the most important discoveries mm. in this field was to actually discover that there, you know, there is what we call bi-directional communication mm. between the brain and the immune system. Mm. And what we have in the, this sort of dynamic relationship between our immune system and our endocrine system is a, a mechanism in which we can turn on and off the immune system and that's what we need our endocrine system to be able to do mm. and if i guess it's been set up differently in some people in utero that would explain why they are therefore more predisposed to certain conditions because that's also all often been cited hasn't it but not proven exactly it's a it's actually a, um, a very exciting field at the moment it's mm. an area we re refer to as fetal programming and uh, we're starting to really understand why it is that some people are more predisposed to certain mm. disorders in adulthood. And it's because this hard wiring mm. is altered so early in life. Mm. Um, and it doesn't have to be a big perturbation or a big challenge to the system early in life, but it's enough to shift the system in one or other direction. I tell you why it's lovely from a GP's point of view, because it takes the emphasis off the poor damn patient. Instead of saying, this is your problem, you can now say to them, well, look, maybe you didn't choose your parents well which of course is absurd yeah, exactly. and so you know the whole thing just gets a lot lighter we just say okay well, what do we do about it it's true it's exactly true although i keep saying to, to 
my students now, it's no, you know, we can't go back and start blaming mum all over it. No. But it, it, I think what it's doing, what uh, a lot of this work in the area of fetal programming is doing, is, is just explaining individual differences. And making mm, us, exactly. Yeah, and making us very aware of that, that early stage of life is yeah. just so critical in setting yeah. the stage for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find that these people are you, you you at this point in time I guess haven't specifically studied them through to morbidity, mortality? No, we haven't. Um, but there are some uh, sort of groundbreaking studies, I guess, that sort of uh, in the area of field of programming that looked at cohorts back in actually in the UK where they looked at birth weights of children mm-hmm. and they found a very strong relationship between children that were born with a low birth weight um, with morbidity and mortality and that these people were more prone to heart disease and early death as a consequence. Mm-hmm. And we know that mothers that are stressed typically have uh, low birth weight children or are more predisposed to have a low birth weight infant. Right, and but there are other co- oh well, yes, of course, a lot of those other causes are stressful. Yes, agreed. Yes, yes. Okay, and this may be why they are smaller, which is the link we didn't have before. We couldn't understand exactly. Yeah. Right, interesting stuff. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reed, and I'm discussing a brand new to me, and I think to a lot of us, field of science called psychoneuroimmunology, or the connection between how you feel and your well-being. So, Deborah, we've discussed some of the studies, some of the research. I mean, it'd be impossible in a short interview like this to discuss a lot of it. But what are you particularly doing at New- in your lab at Newcastle University? We, uh, I run what's known as the Laboratory of Neuroimmunology, and what we do is, is mainly focus on this area of fetal programming, trying to really understand, you know, what what events early in life can predict or alter our trajectory towards sort of later disease or health. So really trying to get a handle on this idea that our early life exposure to stress possibly or exposure to infection may actually set the stage for whether we can maintain health throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. And as a, you know, we're doing that predominantly in, in animal models, but we also have a, a human uh, model where we're looking actually at asthma, the effects of uh, mothers who have asthma and what that does to their offspring and long-term health outcomes for those offspring. But how do you rule out the effect of the mother herself having the asthma, the genetic sort of predisposition? Oh, that's, it is. It's a difficult issue. I think that what we're trying to look at, though, is uh, when we look at mothers who have exacerbations of their asthma, because, you know, it's an inflammatory disorder, um, and we see what that actually does to the offspring. Oh, you can't eliminate the genetic factor, but what we're more interested in is does that affect behaviour? Does that ex- uh, okay. express responding? Not so much the genetic or the, the predisposition. Mm, not so much whether they get asthma, but no. how they behave. Because it's an inflammatory stimulus, it's mm-hmm. activating that HPA or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, mm-hmm. changing, we believe, or programming that fetal uh, sort of endocrine axis and mm. potentially, we believe, changing the way they respond to stress in adulthood, and which again is this whole cascade of more stress in adulthood or more cortisol in adulthood, mm-hmm. you know, it has all these negative uh, correlates mm. in terms of health. Mm, cardiovascular disease and, exactly. uh, and uh, diabetes particularly, yep. yeah. And so in using an animal model, of course, it's all sped up, isn't it? Because they only live sort of, they live a shorter life. Yeah. And do you select with particular breeds of animals? We do, actually. We've got a mm. number of models that we're looking at. I mean, not only are we looking at sort of the asthma model, mm-hmm. but we're interested in uh, tumours, um, 
cancer, okay. that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So we mm-hmm. have an animal model where we look at what happens if, you know, the animal's exposed to infection early in life, what's its resistance to tumour growth like when it grows up. By giving it something that's oncogenic, or cancer-forming? Exactly. Right. And okay. we see, so you know, artificially, yeah. Yeah. And so we have a, a tumour model that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And we have other models where we're actually looking at, you know, models of uh, type 2 diabetes or models of cardiovascular disease as well. Mm. Um, and another model where we're looking actually predominantly at anxiety behaviour. Okay. So uh, one of the things that we find continually in, in our work is that the animals that have had a, a stressed mm-hmm. experience in utero, mm-hmm. when they grow up, mm-hmm. they display what we consider to be anxiety behaviours in right. adulthood right. and an accelerated rate of cognitive ageing. Right. So stress in dementia. utero, mm-hmm. we get older a lot quicker. Right, right. And so that affects dementia then too. Yes. There's a fascinating study. I think it's you probably know it's it's in one of the journals of cardiology. Yes, yeah. um, just recently where they looked at uh, they fed atherogenic meal to rabbits to yeah. speed up the process, and they had this one group of rabbits that just wouldn't succumb, wouldn't get the ischemic heart disease, and they didn't know what was going on. And then somebody observed that the handler was actually loving them. He he really loved these animals, and he used to handle them and caress it's, them and sort of you know cuddle them and things, and then put them back in the cage. That such a wonderful example of this. And it's in the Journal of Cardiology. That's even more wonderful. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> American study. American Journal of Cardiology. Yeah. One of the very first studies in this area was by Seymour Levine, who showed exactly that. If mm. we just pick the rat pups up when they're first born, mm. handle them for a few mm. seconds, you put them back down, mm. do that for three weeks when mm. they're first born. When they grow up, they're less responsive to stress. They have mm-hmm. stronger immune responses mm-hmm. and they show less anxiety on anxiety mm. tests. Mm, but if so you contrast that, you can contrast that with another model, which is uh, what we, con- we consider as a, a model of neglect, if you like. Mm-hmm. And you take the pup yes. away from the mum okay. for mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. you get the opposite finding, very yeah. negative outcomes. Yeah, and there's a repeated studies of that sort of thing in monkeys. And, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think the horrible one that I heard about was that when in Romania they went into those orphanages where the children couldn't possibly be cared for adequately and they were terribly small. Yeah, so it's been known for a long time. This, this is, to me, is really important stuff for where we're up to on the planet now in terms of we're well fed, we can look after infections, etc. Now we're at this stage where we need to start to answer some of these finer sort of questions. Is there appropriate funding out there for this type of research? I think that's the million dollar question, if only. Um, it's very. Million dollar. Yeah, I wish it was a million dollars, but um, no, I mean, it's, I think that funding is, is very tight. Um, and we've had a lot of funds withdrawn over the years into, into this area. Um, oh, withdrawn? Oh. Well, I think it, it gets directed into priority areas. And right now, um, this, whilst this is a rapidly growing area and mm. it's, uh, you know, attracting a lot of interest, particularly, you know, in the States and in Europe. Right. Um, Australia is a little bit slow on the uptake, I think, okay. at this point. Um, I think the interest is growing, but right now um, we still see the funding will go to what you would say, you know, uh, curing diseases. Mm. Um, now, I think why this area is so important mm. and should be attracting funding is because exactly as you said, we're getting pretty good at treating diseases. Mm. What we want to do is focus more on preventing disease. Well, we're not so good at treating the cancers, if you don't mind me saying so. Well, that's we're true. getting better, but I yeah. don't know, well, I don't even know that. 
you know, um, there's an awful lot of money goes into chemotherapy research, radiation research, etc., which is wonderful, don't yeah. get me wrong, but I don't know that we're seeing such a huge... You know, I'm not allowed to do ultrasounds on ovarian ultrasounds on a screening basis because right. we're still not great at treating it, you know. Exactly. Well, that's what they're telling us at any rate, the policy makers. So, you know, I wonder in terms of clout, I think this is very important research. I, I think you're exactly right. I, I sometimes wonder we poured so much money into those sorts of areas such as uh, the treatment of whatever, medical cures or whatever. And, uh, you know, I wonder if we should be just focusing a little more heavily on, on prevention and mm. that's what this field is all about is, uh, you know, prevention, identifying risk factors early in life and being able to, you know, say, well, this person might be predisposed to a certain disorder. Let's adjust their lifestyle now before yes. we see the onset of disease. Markers. Yes, absolutely, and look after our mothers better in pregnancy. And that, yes, exactly. Perhaps, you yes. know, be aware. I mean, that's it's an awareness thing, isn't it, more yes. than anything. You don't actually have to solve the problem. No, I think it's... Once a, you're aware of a problem, it's it's halfway solved. Yeah, yeah, and uh, getting the information out to the public is is, uh, is mm. really, really important. I think they're, they're the ones who support what we do in many ways by, you know, listening to shows such as this and, and uh, you know, being interested, I guess, in what goes on in the field. And being interested in their well-being. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and most of them know, or I'm absolutely sure, listeners, that what we're saying is making a lot of sense to you. It's just nice to know, I think, that people like you will dedicate your lives to the scientific proof such that the policy makers can start to put their money behind it and make this an important part of well-being. Yeah. It's certainly the area that's not well addressed at the moment or discussed. No, I think that, that's true. We can, we can only hope that it's coming. I think we really see a rise in the incidence of disorders which we now see as aging disorders such mm. as you know, type 2 diabetes, asthma, mm. cardiovascular disease mm. and we have to, to really wonder why we're seeing so much of that when we've got what we consider to be a healthy sort of environment to grow up in. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It's been a fascinating discussion. I thank you very much for your time in general. How long have you been in the area, did you say? I've been working in the area mm. for 15 years. I've oh, only been up here in Newcastle for, for six now. Well, I think we're very privileged to have you. And I think that's an amazing dedication to people's well-being and I thank you very much for that. Oh, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening once again to Wellbeing. I hope you enjoyed the program. My name is Dr Virginia Reid and I have been speaking to Dr Deborah Hodgson from Newcastle University. From all of us here at Wellbeing, we wish you well.